This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 81. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. To achieve greatness in anything requires goals and targets, but more importantly, they need to be specific goals, not just saying that you want to be great. And our guest this episode, Stuart Sink, has done just that as a PGA Tour professional. Prior to turning professional in 1995, Stuart would play at Georgia Tech, earning All-American honors in 1993, 94, and 95, while being named ACC Player of the Year that same year. He would be named PGA Tour Rookie of the Year in 1997 before establishing himself as one of the top golfers on tour, spending over 40 weeks in the top 10 of the official world golf rankings from 2004 to 2009. And he would become a major champion in 2009 when he would have his name etched on the claret jug by winning the Open Championship, also known as the British Open, in a dramatic playoff versus Tom Watson. He's been selected to the U.S. Ryder Cup team five times and the President's Cup four times before earning the Payne Stewart Award in 2017, which is given annually to the player whose values align with the character, charity, and sportsmanship that Payne showed. And he was also recently elected into the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame. Here's episode 81 with Stuart Sink. Stuart, thank you so much for joining me here. And we can now not only say you're our Open Championship winner on your resume, but now we can say Alabama Sports Hall of Fame <laughs> yeah, member, yeah, right? Can say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How was that whole experience? And when you got that call, what was that like? Oh, uh, you know, it was uh, it was really cool to get the call. Um, we don't do what we do, whether it's uh, me playing golf or a football player, or baseball, anything, you know, you don't do your thing in, in the end result. You look forward to becoming a hall of fame member, at least in golf. I don't think you do. You know, it's, it's not something that's on your, uh, it's not on your mind at all during your career. You just do what you do every day. You get up and try to be a little bit better than you were the day before. Yeah. So that was and, never a goal. No, and it wasn't a goal. And, and, um, only because it's just something that you don't, you don't do what you do every day with the recognition in mind, you know, it's just a, it's a challenge every day to try to be as good as you were the next, the day before or better, and just try to figure out little ways to incrementally improve. And over time, it leads to a career, and that career leads to things like being called for the Alabama Sports Hall. And how was that phone call when that you got was it? cool. Scott Myers called me, and um, he told me uh, that I was going to be part of the induction class and kind of gave me the, the sort of the rundown of the rules and all that <laughs> stuff. You know, you have to be present. That was the yeah. number one thing. <laughs> But it was uh, it was really neat, you know, um, being from Alabama, my home state, you know, and I haven't lived there for quite a few years now. But 
I still feel a really strong tie there. And um, some of my personal connections to my hometown of Florence, Alabama, have kind of disappeared since my family's all moved out of there. And, you know, it just happens in life. And so um, I found myself the last couple of years trying to uh, sort of like reestablish a little bit of the connection in the area. And it was really the perfect timing for uh, the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame, too, because it got me sort of a reconnection and it revitalized my connection to the state. And what are you doing right now then with that connection? Are there some things that you're working on to be connected again it, back to Alabama? In the very beginning stages, we're trying to put together a, a big junior golf tournament up in the area where I came from. And we don't know yet anything about where the site's going to be or anything, but I do know that uh, I've been talking with the AJGA, the American Junior Golf Association, and with uh, Transamerica, one of my major sponsors, who's a partner with them too, about starting up an, an event. And we're, we're excited about it. Uh, it's probably going to be a summer event. We're just starting with the preliminaries right now, but uh, look for it maybe to emerge on the schedule for 2019. Well, that'll be exciting, yeah, and be. especially being connected back to junior golf. And speaking of that, what's your earliest memories of you growing up in Alabama and how sports became such a dominant part of your life, and obviously golf? Yeah, um, I my earliest memories of golf actually aren't memories, they're photographs. And uh, what I mean by that is my first golf experience was before I even was forming memories. I mean, I was like two years old sitting on the ground with a left-handed six iron. <laughs> and my dad had, uh, I guess either someone gave it to him or he cut it down. It was like... Now, was he left-handed? No. Okay, you he just wasn't. had a random left-handed club. Just a random left-handed club. I don't know where that came from. Uh, it could have been that maybe I like held my little uh, Gerber spoon with my left hand <laughs> when I was that age or something. Uh, and my kids both are left-handed uh, riders and eaters, but they do everything else right-handed. They throw and play golf, all their hitting sports, all that's right-handed, but they, they eat and write with their left. So it could have been that I was like that when I was little. I'll have to ask my parents. But um, earliest memories go back to even before I can honestly have memories. And my, my parents played golf. When, uh, when I was born, I was the first one born. My sister was next, and I only have the one sister. And uh, my parents started playing golf when I was born because they wanted to do something outside that they could do together. And that was, at the time, relatively a cheap thing to do on the municipal course. And so uh, instead of hiring a sitter, they just took me along. I was out there and watching them. And they were, like I said, they were beginners. So it's not like I learned how to play good <laughs> golf for my parents. But I learned how to really enjoy golf. And I learned that golf has like a major set of values. And golf was just with me from uh, from the very, very beginning. And I played other sports. I played soccer. was my main sport um, for eight years. I love soccer. I played soccer when I was six years old until 14. And uh, golf really became a passion for me when I was old enough to go on the course. And I, I was we snuck on the course, my dad and I, before I was eight. But our course was, uh, we had a, a minimum of eight years old. But I couldn't technically play until I was eight. By the time I was eight... I was so excited to go to play on the course, and then I found out that you couldn't play till after 3 o'clock. <laughs> so I was a little bit bummed out about that, but I would play from 3 o'clock until whenever the sun went down, and sometimes, you know, that was like 9 o'clock. So uh, golf became a passion once I was old enough to go on the course and have fun playing on the, on the golf course and playing with my friends, and I realized I was pretty decent at it. Yeah, did it just come natural to you? It came very natural to me. Uh, our course, when I grew up, didn't have a range, per se, so there was no, like, hitting balls. It was just chipping, putting. I don't even know if we had a practice bunker. I don't think we did. 
So it was chipping and putting, <laughs> and it was a lot of putting. <laughs> and then, uh, well, that's very important. It's important. And once I got old enough to go on the course, I had basically chipped and putted my butt off for about two years and gotten pretty proficient at that area of the game. So um, all I needed to do was just dink it around until I got within about sixty yards of the hole, and then I was up and down. Oh wow! So I would dink, 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 dink. Now you're down. making me jealous because <laughs> that's my biggest weakness. Because, but I never practiced that. I just practiced it a lot. And uh, when you're a kid, you just learn by, uh, I don't know, your, your motor movements just are so quick to adapt to the most efficient way to do things. I never had any lessons. I never learned anything out of any, uh, books except for my dad did have, um, the Ben Hogan book called, I think it's called five lessons. Maybe it's one of the famous golf books. You'll have to maybe check that, but I think it's called five lessons. And, uh, he taught me some of the fundamentals about the grip and the stance out of that. But other than that, but no was, formal lessons. No, not really. No. no, I took the junior clinic when I was a little kid, once I was eight, but I was already a little bit past the junior clinic stage. So I, by the time I was like 11, I was able to go out there and kind of teach it when the pro wasn't available, <laughs> you know, cause I knew the drills and I knew exactly what you're supposed to do. And I can tell a kid like, no, no, not like that. Like, like this. You know? <laughs> and, uh, I think the singularity of it, like uh, the solo nature of the game came natural to me too. And I enjoyed yeah, that. I was like, going to ask you, did you really embrace that? Just it's you. I did. And, and I think I had no idea that I was embracing it until yeah. much, much later when I kind of started to know about myself a little bit more and learn about who Stuart Sink was that I realized that now it makes sense why golf fit into my life so well, because I just saw golf as a sort of multifaceted challenge where you had the course and the conditions that challenge you, but also you had your own insides you had your, your heart and your mind to be like a major obstacle in your way that just stands in the way of so many people in golf. It stands in the way of everybody to a certain extent. You know, it's the one who wins and the one who's on top of the world at any moment is just the one who's overcoming that obstacle the most. And I think it's just so unique because it's not really a reactionary sport. And a lot of times you hear people talk about or athletes talk about, well, we really wasn't thinking it just... I reacted as far as like making a play, making a shot or, you know, throwing a pass or whatever. Yeah. But golf, you have a lot of time to sit there and think before you're actually making some type of movement. You do. And um, I think what you said is exactly actually the opposite of what golf is. And the, the obstacle mentally for golf is to turn it into a reactionary sport, even though you have so much time. But that's the trick. And that's where the successful ones can do that. Yep. Exactly. Wow. Because when you have all that time to plan your shot, like, you know, you pass the ball to Michael Jordan in the corner and time's running out and the clock stops and he has like 45 seconds to sit there <laughs> and think about the shot and practice his stroke and nobody else is moving. And then he executes it. That's golf. That's right. Can you, can Michael Jordan turn it off to the point where he only thinks about his process and he repeats the process without thinking about the result in that kind of slowing down of time? Not saying that he couldn't, because if he was a golfer, Michael Jordan would have been probably one of the top golfers in history, because he can do that with his mind. But that, to me, is like the essence of the challenge of the game of golf and how it fits in with other sports. Yeah, And that's why free throw shooters are good. They can do that, right? Golf is free throw shooting. It's serving in tennis. It's pitching. That's that's golf. Those, those things all fit together because you kind of have your own – you can build your own present in golf, in pitching – bowling. Yes. You can build your own present. You know, if you uh, get distracted, you can start over and build a new present. You always have that option in golf and uh, in the team sports that are 
offense, defense, or where you've got an opponent where you're playing against, you know, you don't have that. And it's a different type of reaction, but it's still a very athletic reaction. It takes a lot of training. Yeah. And you mentioned values of golf that you picked up early. And like, what do you mean by values of golf? I think everybody knows about the, uh, the values, uh, such as like the character, you know, we call penalties on ourselves and mm-hmm. that can be pretty annoying, you know, when you look down at your ball in the rough and it rolls one millimeter and you know there's not one soul out Nobody of seven billion it. people on the earth that yeah. ever saw that. But you know that you can never sleep another second in your life with any peace if you don't call yourself on that penalty. And that, that's just the way golf is. You call it and you say, hey, guys, my ball moved. I uh, had addressed it. It's one-shot penalty. Everybody knows the rule. you got to replace the ball. And did you ever have a moment earlier in your career where you did that or didn't call a penalty on yourself? Oh, yeah. And you, I, and you I, thought about it? I, I did about that it? when I was a kid. I, um, I, had, I had moments. What did I – I can't even remember now. Um, but I had some times when I, like, let it go a little bit, and, it, and I've, you know, it, it bothered me to the point where I understand that's how golf sort of trains you in your life. That the, the, big, the biggest case, the biggest example that, that I can think of, the best one, I was in Bay Hill in Orlando playing a tournament, and I was, uh, it was on Thursday, and I had played in the afternoon, played a decent round on a tough day with a lot of wind and difficult conditions, and I was about, uh, I was about one over for the day. You know, decent score that day. And I was in the back left bunker on the ninth hole, first round, and this is my 18th hole of the day. And um, I was in the bunker, and in the sand, you know, you, for the non-golfers out there, you can't put your club down in the sand. You can't touch the sand before you hit your bunker shot. You have to hover it. And if you touch the sand, it's a two-shot penalty, which is kind of a weird rule of golf. No, I agree. There's some that just blow my mind. Yes. (laughs) So you have to sort of like hover the club above the sand. And if you touch anything on the sand or if you touch the sand, it's a problem. And so uh, I hover it, and then I pull the club back to take my shot. And once that happens, you know, your mechanism is kind of like released, and it's hard to stop your shot. I mean, you've seen – we all see Tiger – when he does that, I'm convinced that Tiger knows he's going to stop his shot before he does that. <laughs> yeah. And he starts it anyway so he can stop. But that's another story. <laughs> but on this bunker shot, I take the club back and I hit the ball. And I realized about uh, halfway through my backswing that I had clipped something. And what happened was there was a leaf that was buried in the sand, completely buried, a tiny little leaf. But the stem was sticking up out of the sand. and It was sticking up straight towards my eyes so I couldn't see it. It looked like a speck. The club nicks the stem little stick of the leaf, the, the stem, and the whole leaf just uncovers itself <laughs> in the sand like that. It's too late for me to stop. I hit the shot, and because I'm, like, freaked out, I kind of blade it, and it goes, like, 30 feet past the hole. Now I've got a bad shot caused by this situation. I have to add two shots, two putt for triple bogey. Oh, my god. So goodness. I turn a decent round into a horrendous round all because of that one little thing that no one would have ever seen because... Yeah, they wouldn't have known. No, because my club, you know, when you take the club away oh the, so fast the leaf comes up and then i just destroyed the whole area with my shot the sand and the leaf go flying you would never have seen any evidence but you called the penalty of course yourself. you do and 100 percent of players would have called it that's part of the deal yeah well i think it obviously teaches a lot about honesty authenticity and even discipline discipline to even yeah. be able to do that you know call that yeah. on yourself it does and uh, those are all good values in life if you think of about it. there's a lot of crossover in life and going back to your question about values uh, it does teach you just a lot of, um, it, it teaches you a lot of uh, character, such as the rules. You know, that's sort of the low-hanging fruit. But also it teaches you a lot about, like, how you react in certain situations, how you get along with other players in com- competitive situations. You know, 
teaches a lot about yourself. And speaking of interacting with other players, what's it like on tour, you're out there playing, and obviously you have friends on tour, but are you guys like having conversations during a tournament, or is it pretty much everybody's focused on the singular activity of trying to win the tournament and you really don't have much interaction, it's, at least during when you're on the course. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of differs from player to player, um, and every player has kind of a unique relationship with each one of the other players that you could get paired with. You know, some are really tight, and some of my friends, I'm my some of my best friends in the world are out there. And then there's other players out there that I've known for years, maybe 20 years. I've known these players, and I still like I know you better than I know them, <laughs> just because you don't cross over in the rest of your life that much, you know. And so I think that's pretty normal with any let's let's call it an office with you know 300 employees that a hundred of them are different every year. You know, you got a core group that's been there forever, and you've got a hundred or so that are completely new faces that you have one year to get to know and then they're gone. And by the way, your focus is not to try to get to know them. <laughs> it's to beat them yes. and to do your best you that you can be. So um, in that case, you can imagine how, you know, you form good relationships and tight relationships, with some people, and then other people, uh, you just don't even hardly know their names or faces. It makes sense that when I would play with some of my best friends out there, you know, we'll hit our shots and we'll grind our butts off. But then in between the shots, we'll like catch up and talk and laugh and, yeah, well, are you talking about life? Are you talking about family? I mean, are you yeah, just talking you can about talk the... about everything? I mean, we talk about funny stuff that happened today. We can talk about what's going on with you know the business they started on the side. We can talk about their kids in school. Talk about you know how uh, they have their um, maybe a, a child you know had legal problems. You know, some of my <laughs> friends are older and their kids are college age. You yeah. know, I know life happens. People have had you know DUIs and flunked out of school and and all those things. You know, we've dealt with all that stuff. So. And what about any type of trash talking? A little bit, maybe if you're like really, really close friends with somebody. But it, I think there did exist some trash talking probably in generations before, but that was probably even before my time because nowadays it's just uh, there's too much at stake out there, and it's uh, it's just not all fun and games. You know, there's there's too much on the line. Everybody is uh, really intense, really intense out there now. Yeah. What about in the Ryder Cup? Is that even more intense because you're playing for your country? It is. It's a little bit more intense because you, the spotlight is so focused on the event and there's so few players and um, it's a team aspect. So uh, everybody's just super motivated by not wanting to lose. Do you enjoy that more than playing solo? I mean, I, I wouldn't say I enjoy it more, but I don't know. I enjoy playing solo too. I, I love playing. I think just golf is fascinating, period. But I do enjoy the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup, the formats, the um, the team play, the fact that you get to build the bond, you know, with somebody else um, over your experience. Uh, some of my best friends from in my entire life are players that I've played in matches with. You, you play on a team with uh, different guys and – if you're paired with them, you know, you develop a bond. Of course. You go through the heat and, uh, you know, winning and losing feels like everything. But then, you know, if you don't play with a guy on a team for uh, in one of the matches, then, you know, you don't develop the same kind of bond. And that's just, I think, the way it naturally works. But, yeah, some of my best friends are guys that I've paired up with over the years. Now, how did you get to Georgia Tech from Alabama? Uh, just recruiting. So recruiting, what other schools I, were recruiting you then? Auburn recruited me and Stanford. So it really came down to those those three. I, I was also recruited by Wake Forest in Florida, but by the time my visits 
came, uh, they had already given out their scholarships. And so okay. they pretty much told me like, look, we don't have a place for you. <laughs> and so uh, it came down to Auburn, Stanford, and Georgia Tech. And I so was- So what made the decision well, Georgia I was, Tech though? I was a good student coming out of high school, like 4.0. And um, I didn't feel academically like all that challenged in high school. I was, you know, I found it pretty easy. And so I wanted to go somewhere where I would get a good education because I, I had no, uh, I, I wouldn't say I had no aspirations of becoming a pro golfer, but I, it wasn't really something I thought about. I didn't think ahead. I wasn't a, I was, I was not a like dreamer type growing up. I yeah. Was, so you weren't thinking about, not hey, at all. I've got this goal. I'm going to make it to the PGA tour. Not at all. I, I knew I could play golf and I knew I could compete with some of the best at my age level, but I also was, uh, I was kind of, a tempered excitement environmentally with some of the people that were around me in my life that were like, you know, you're, yeah, you're good right now, but you wait till you get off to college, you know, they're, they're <laughs> those, a different level, those right? men can really play. And I, I watched them. The SECs were at uh, a course called Turtle Point in my hometown for uh, quite a few years when I was a kid. And I used to go out there and watch them and just be in awe, like, oh my gosh, the college players, <laughs> will I ever be able to do that? And uh, then, you know, as a, a, a about a 17-year-old, I started getting a lot of attention from colleges and started believing that, okay, I'm like that. Yes, I'm and one of those I, guys. And when I played at Turtle Point occasionally, I wasn't a member there, I was hitting the shots that they were hitting, and I could fly the bunkers that they could fly, and I was like, I, okay, I'm there. I but I never compete. really saw myself in the same set of eyes that I saw some of the great players in my contemporary times, or maybe just a little older than me, like the, the college players that were winning the SECs. I just always thought, oh man, look at that. And then the players that were winning out on the the smaller circuits on on the mini tours and mm-hmm. on the uh, back then the Hogan tour or the Nike tour, which is now the web.com. I just thought, oh man, how can I ever compete against those guys? I mean, they shoot like, you know, the cuts under par and when I got out, you know, into the pros, I just thought, how can I ever you know, do what these PGA tour pros <laughs> exactly. are look at? I never saw myself through the same lens. And so uh, I never allowed myself really to think like a dreamer, like far in the future. I just wanted to try to be better tomorrow. Okay. So did you have a so-called plan B? I mean, what were you going to do if you weren't going to play golf? Uh, well, the, there's a funny video that my wife loves to torture me with. Uh, from oh, we've got to find this. <laughs> when I was about, um, uh, what was I, probably 15. I, I was playing in, uh, in Tampa at Innisbrook, and it was in one of my first AJGA tournaments where I, I made some noise locally, and I got into some regional tournaments, and I made a little bit of noise in those, and I got invited to the big set. You know, the it was called the Rolex, whatever. The mat, they used to have a big match play. I'm not even sure if they still have it. But it was like a major, and players came in from everywhere. I mean, it was the top players. And I uh, kept winning matches. And, you know, like this... I was the kid from the little town. No one knew who I was. And I was beating the big names who you know today, Justin Leonard, guys like that. You know? Wow. And I was winning and I won, won the tournament. All of a sudden here I am like uh, with a camera and a microphone in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> and they, At 15 years old. I think I was 16. Okay, actually, 16. come to think of it. So they said, well, what are you, uh, what are you plans? You know, what do you, what do you plan to do? And, and my quote, the one that Lisa likes to throw back at me all the time in my video was, I want to go into pro shop management. <laughs> and I said it in kind of a hick way and uh, kind of some buck teeth too back then. I said, pro shop management. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that was my well, you that was plan, plan B, I guess. Bit. Plan yeah. B was pro shop management. Yeah. But I, uh, 
I, I knew I wanted to be around the game somehow. Um, I just never allowed myself really to be a dreamer um, in that way. So, but now you're 20 plus years on the tour. So when was it that day at Georgia Tech or whenever that I, I'm, I'm going after this well, PGA I, I, career? Keep in mind, I never said that I was never planning to try. I just never saw myself as be, reaching the tour and being like a 22-year veteran PGA Tour player, career golfer. I, I never dreamed like that. I never didn't plan to try. And so the, the moment really crystallized in my mind when uh, I got a phone call from Lisa when we were uh, just about in the middle of our sophomore year in college. And she said, um, we have a baby coming. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we okay. did things in our early, the early part of our life was different than uh, the traditional uh, early couple. And we got married in college and our son Connor was born while we were in college. Okay. While we were just at the start of our, so- or our junior year in college. Connor was born, we were married. So we spent the last two years in college raising our first one and trying to figure out what it was like to be married and playing golf. My uh, coach was great. He just said, as long as I keep up my end of the bargain, my scholarship's the same place. I was one of the top players. And uh, yeah. when that happened, it really changed my life on the course more than I thought it ever would have. And what do you mean by that? How well, did it change? I just, uh, overnight, you know, I went from being like a kid that had plenty of time on my hands to a man that had a family, responsibility, Quickly. no money, and no time. And so uh, my ability to organize and be efficient and uh, really get the most out of my time just like it well it became a thing <laughs> before it wasn't <laughs> that's right and I, I would practice golf for an hour and 20 minutes and go to class and go pick up connor and then wait for lisa to get off work she worked and took school she did take a semester off school but then she started working in two jobs and classes and so we just juggled lisa and i and if i had a gap i would practice golf if I didn't have a gap, I wouldn't practice golf. Then I would study and keep up everything. And it just forced me to really be efficient in my life. And when, when I started being efficient and organized and a little bit more focused and intentional about everything I was doing in all facets of my life, my golf on the course just started a new type of trajectory. And I don't mean the trajectory of the ball. I mean the trajectory of my performances. Wow. It just like took off. And because of now you are much more focused, much more focused. I was was efficient and I uh, was getting the most out of my practice time. There was no wasted seconds in the day. I can't even imagine (laughs) how that challenge of that balance and Mm -hmm. being thrust into that at such an early age like that. Yeah. And and I look back now, you know, my son is about to turn 25. So um, I can't even hardly remember or imagine how difficult it was. (laughs) And it was it was it was. But what it a blessing, was, It though, was extremely right? difficult. It was an extreme blessing. Um, we needed it so bad. Had no idea. It was like the greatest cornerstone that we could have ever been given for a young marriage to, to have that kind of struggle. And, and just call it a struggle. You know, I mean, I hesitate to call it a struggle because there's people that are struggling. And I understand that having a child when you're 20 years old and you're in college is not what most people consider to be a struggle. It was difficult circumstances, but it was a, an unbelievable experience for us. That was hard, but it taught us a lot, and it got us started on the right foot. And it got my golf just—I mean, it, it 
I can hardly even describe how much difference there was, you know, in quickly a difference in golf. And so um, it became kind of like a, a race to the finish line. Like, I want to get as good as I can at golf while I'm here, earn a degree, try to learn what it is to be a dad and a husband and uh, get out and turn pro immediately. And I did and graduated in June on time, four years. My wife graduated in time, four years. That's amazing. Molecular biology. She oh, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, Connor was almost two when we graduated. And I turned pro that day and never looked back, except my first act as a professional golfer was to go to the airport and miss my flight. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, G- give me the backdrop though. Where are you going and how do you miss your yeah, flight? I, I went to uh, my first. It's a great way to start. A great way to start, <laughs> yep. And we were, um, when, I, when I graduated, my wife and I graduated on June the 10th, 1995. And we were about 500 bucks in the hole as far as our checking account. We also had other debts and, you know, liabilities we were carrying <laughs> that were financially difficult. But um, our checking account said negative 500. We were overdrawn by 500 bucks. And I start by missing a flight and having to pay like 700 bucks for a flight. (laughs) I was my, my first golf, uh, my first round of golf as a pro was I played in the Monday qualifier in the, uh, what is now the web.com event in Cleveland, Ohio. So I was flying up there, missed my flight, had to buy a new flight, new ticket. And I get up there and I missed the qualifier too. But on the last hole, my um, agent, my then agent, was waiting for me, and his office was in Cleveland. And he said, well, tough break today, you know, didn't get in, but I got some good news for you. Hartford, the um, Travelers, has offered you a sponsor exemption to play the next week. And so i um, really excited about that. Got a chance to play. My first event, therefore, was the, uh, it was back then, the Cannon Greater Hartford Sammy Davis Jr. Open. <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr., Cannon Greater Hartford Open, <laughs> 1995. That's a mouthful. 1995. And, and I played, made the cut, played pretty well, finished in the top 20, earned a check, and um, got us out of the immediate debt of the checking account. We still had other ones. But my, that first check, just actually making a cut and competing against the top players in the world and, and finishing where I did, I think it was 18th maybe, and uh, feeling like I didn't even play that great. I felt like, okay, maybe there's, maybe there's something to this. Yeah. So that's how I got started. And, and I think it's so unique, though, as you mentioned, as you get this check that in golf and maybe I guess in tennis as well and some of these other singular sports that, I mean, you're not signing a contract and getting paid, you know, throughout that term of the contract. You're only earning money if you're playing in these tournaments and then yeah. having success by making the cut. Yeah, that's true. That's got to be a challenge. Have- I did have Titleist as a sponsor back then, as I do now. And we haven't had an ongoing relationship, but they started with me. And then uh, in the last like five, six years, we've also had a partnership. So they were giving me a little bit of startup money to get going. Um, that's pretty common for them to give a deal to like a, I think actually I was the player of the year in college my senior year. If I was the player of the year in college now, the deal would be a lot different than it was back then. <laughs> Um, and I had a company, a clothing company gave me a tiny little bit too. And our management company gave us kind of like a loan to help us pay off some of our bills. They knew the situation we were in. And so they gave us a loan, which we had to pay back. But we did use that to uh, take care of some of our responsibilities financially. And then as I earned a little bit more money on the course, I was able to pay them back and get out from under that. So got ourselves solvent, I guess, within about the first six months. When was it that you won your first tournament? 
my first tournament win in all of golf would have been probably, uh, that was 95. I turned pro, uh, I think in, in 95 towards the end of that year, I played in a, there's a tournament. I think it's still called the Hooters tour. It's a, one of the minor tours. It's like a single A ball. And, uh, they have, they had a tournament a series of tournaments where they had a finale at the end of the year that was a little bit elevated purse money and you had to qualify to get in. But, oh, they also just let some people in if you wanted in. <laughs> and so um, that tournament was going on in Atlanta during a time when I didn't have anything going on. And I asked for a spot in the tournament and they gave it to me, knowing I was local and I was the top college player. And I won and that was like 20 grand for first place. And that was like my, I think that was my first win as a pro if I it's been a few years, but if I, if I had to go back and remember, I think that was it. Was that like a windfall, twenty thousand dollars? It like, was. Wow. It was. Uh, I just, I do remember that um, when I got in the tournament, that Lisa boycotted the tournament because the <laughs> sponsor being Hooters, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and would not come to the golf course. Okay, <laughs> so she went to visit her parents in Alabama, and um, I had uh, different guys from my college team caddy for me every day. I had like three guys that caddy for me, just rotating out, and uh, played great golf. And I won by, I think I won by a lot, like maybe six or seven shots. Oh, wow. It was cool. So speaking of caddies, how do you choose a caddy? I mean, what are you looking for? Uh, most of the time, the caddies um, of the players are, are kind of chosen from, there's like a pool of caddies out there, that guys that caddy. And you get to know somebody because he's caddied for a player that you're friends with or you've paired up with a few times and you like the way they work. And if you kind of get the sense that they're unhappy, then you can kind of see if, hey, you want to come work for me? And uh, players leave all the time and switch players. And there's some, there's some loyalty that's expected there between, and it goes both ways, player to caddy and caddy to player. But in the end, the player really just has 100% of the say-so. And uh, the way I, Taylor Ford is the guy that caddies for me right now. And the way I ended up with him is he was caddying um, for Justin Leonard. And Justin was one of my good friends. And we played a lot together. We got paired a few times in tournaments. And uh, Justin decided to retire from golf about end of maybe 16 or 17. Just decided he'd had enough and he wanted to move into the TV thing. And um, so when I when Justin told me that and I heard that he was going to stop playing, I thought maybe Taylor would be a good guy to move over to me. And I was going through um, – I didn't play the – I didn't play a lot in 16. And so it was about that same time when Justin stepped back and I knew that I was in a break. It was kind of a natural time for me to switch caddies. I didn't have a caddy at the time officially. And uh, Justin had stopped, so I called Taylor. And he's, a, he's good. He's young. He's like a, little, a lot closer to my kid's age than he is to my age. <laughs> People always ask every week at least a few times, is that your son caddying? But he's not. He's a really short guy, too. Okay. Both my sons are like giants. <laughs> well, you're tall. I mean, you're 6'4", yeah. or whatever. So, I mean, you definitely got some height yeah. there. So, how often are you, in terms of the caddy, I mean, obviously, you're seeking his advice. But are there times where you guys are just disagreeing, and but, but you lean more on him and say, okay, all right, I'm just going to follow your advice? Or do you go with your gut at times? Uh, I would say... If you had to break it down percentage-wise, I'd say it, you go with the gut 85% of the time and 15% of the time you'd take information that the caddy is telling you and it would change your gut. But that, that'd be about the way probably okay. most players work. Now, there are times when you, know, you get in the heat of the battle and uh, one, of the biggest, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest characteristics of someone under stress, whether it's golf or business or anything, is that they start making 
decisions like that aren't quite the right ones, right? And so uh, I've noticed in, in golf that when it gets crunch time, sometimes, you know, I leave out something in my decision-making, you know, because you got a lot to factor in with club selection, uh, whether it's the lie of the ball, temperature, wind, uphill, downhill, firmness of the green, you know, all that stuff. And sure, I mean, I'm kind of in like a, it, it's almost a rote kind of, you know, process that I go through now. I mean, I could drop a golf ball in any place on the golf course today and I could come up with a club selection like in two seconds, maybe less. But you put yourself in the 72nd hole of a major and maybe your ball's in the rough and you got to figure out the lie and then what's around the green, all that stuff. There's a lot more that goes into it and your mind is racing and sometimes not always it skips stop. It, it skips a, a stop on the checkpoints, you know, <laughs> along the way. Yeah, and you might miss something. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's how uh, that that would be a case where maybe your caddy might say, "Okay, um, let's remember now. You're probably feeling quite, you know, a lot of adrenaline. And sometimes when you have adrenaline, you know that these type of lies, the ball tends to fly a little further than it usually does. So let's take that zone where you're trying to land the ball and move it back five yards. And then that might say, okay, so I think what you're saying is, I think it's an eight iron instead of a seven iron. And then that's how you, it changes your gut instinct. I see. Yeah. And that happens. I mean, that, that does happen. I rely, I wouldn't say I rely on my caddy for information because it's almost like I'm caddying for myself and he's like a backup caddy. We're both doing the same calculations at the same time. And we talk it out. We're very, very vocal with it talking it out so with each other a lot. very much. And occasionally I'll also make a mistake or occasionally he will, you know, he'll like if it's 153 yards to the front and the pins on 10, it's 163. But maybe he forgot to cross out the hole before on the pin sheet and he looks at the wrong hole. He says 153 and 21. It's 174. Yeah. That's I'm a big like, difference. Wait a <laughs> so that's why I always do it too, because there's yeah. in every tournament, there's at least one or two times when either he makes a mistake or when I make a mistake. And it could be like catastrophic when you talk about the shot. Exactly. Now, in terms of the gallery, when you're out there, you're in the zone. Are you still seeing the gallery or are you at a point now in your career? And maybe it was early on and you were able just to not even think about the gallery and all the people around watching you. Cause I would think there's also an aspect of knowing that there's so many people watching you. You're like, all right, I got to hurry up and hit this shot because people are waiting for me to do something. What is that like? It doesn't exist. Doesn't? No. I mean, uh, early on in my career, I, I, well, it's never really bothered me that much to have a lot of people watching. And actually, I use people watching as a tool to help me like try to improve. And uh, it's just psychologically, it's a good way to practice because uh, when you got eyeballs on you, especially when you have only a few, when you have a few people watching, like five or six is people standing there, it's worse than it is to me when you got 10,000. <laughs> it's pretty rare in golf to have 10,000 at one time watching you, but you know, you got lots of times when you have a thousand people watching you. And plus that doesn't even count the TV. That's right. Yes. I mean, so, it's a whole um, other aspect. And the, the thing about the TV is you have not only people watching, but you have somebody else talking about what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so <laughs> analyzing every little of, thing so, you so do. So the way I deal with that is um, it's never been a real big challenge for me with people. Um, first of all, I try to maintain a heart of gratitude that they're actually watching me. And uh, instead of being like in a, um, adversarial position with them. Like they're hoping I mess up. Perfect example is, uh, two perfect examples, the Phoenix tournament West management on that 16th hole where you've got all those people in those chalets, you know, and they're all drinking a lot and they're yelling. Everybody wants to outdo the other one with their comments and like get a high five from their buddy. 
you know, they want you to mess up so they can boo you and so they can see how you react. And that is a place where it's real easy to become adversarial. But I choose to try to embrace that, to make that an embracing thing where I almost put myself in the stands and I'm one of the fans. Like, I'm, I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> you know, I want to, like, have a great time on this hole, too. Yes. And if having a great time on this hole to him means me, like, duffing it or hitting a bad shot or three-putting, having a great time on this hole to me means, like, interacting with them a little bit, hitting my shot on the green and hopefully making a long putt and giving it a fist pump and, you know. Yeah, get some reaction out of them. The other good example is the 17th hole at Sawgrass, the island. Oh, Almost everybody around that hole is just praying that you'll hit your ball in the water. <laughs> and you know that. They want to see you fail. Yeah, right? You know that. So it, it, that is a little bit different situation because it just, uh, the hole also just inherently uh, forces you to focus and concentrate and make your plan on your shot a little bit more intently because of the obvious hazard around the green. Exactly. And just any little mess up can cause you uh, a lot of shots. And that's an important tournament. So, um, that one, you tend to sort of focus on your, on your focus. You focus on your focus and you, you get to practice like really uh, lasering in on what your goal is on that shot and your process. And in the uh, Phoenix tournament, it's a little bit more about um, learning how you deal with, uh, you know, loud fans and people that are saying stupid things. <laughs> they're funny. I mean, they come up with funny stuff there. I, I'm always impressed. But um, there's still a little bit different nuances in the way you handle those two crowds. But going back to my point about how the crowds are, are not a really huge challenge for me, I learned a long time ago that it's not productive to be bothered by people or be um, affected by what people think of you or what you know they expect of you. That's going to exist no matter what. No matter what. No matter what. Yeah. And so um, I uh, try not to let my, uh, my self-belief uh, and my... Uh, confidence rest in what other people are saying or thinking and because I don't even know what they're thinking anyway. That's Most right. of them are probably thinking, well, where's, how can I cross this fairway? Because there's a hot dog, hot dog stand over there. Exactly. <laughs> now, have you ever been in a tournament and whiffed? Just, just missed the ball? Interesting question because um, there was a tournament in 2009 where I whiffed on the fourth hole of the second round and it was the Open Championship that I won. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, uh, that's a big uh, tournament, needless to say. I don't know. And you if, still won. And you won, yeah. And I don't know so if... So give me um, the scoop. What happened? And it was, uh, you know, the Open's a lot, a lot of high rough. And so yes. to the right of the screen on four to par three, there was a lot of really high rough, like hay, call it hay. And I hit my ball just to the right of the green. I wasn't very far from the hole. And uh, my ball's in this really bad lie. And I took one swing at it, and my club just went right under the ball. And I missed, and the ball sunk down even further. But I, I whiffed. And I, golf doesn't have this kind of statistics going way back that, like, baseball does because uh, it's only been in sort of, like, the computer age that we really started keeping detailed stats in golf, so going back about, you know, 30 years. But I would hesitate, I wouldn't hesitate maybe to say that maybe I'm the only golfer in history to have whiffed in the tournament they won in a major. Yeah, <laughs> I would have to put you up there as well. It's I mean, impossible to go back and, and, and get the accuracy of that, but I don't know. I can't imagine that's happened very often. I, well, we're saying it right now. We're saying that's, it. We're I, saying it. I have probably whiffed in tournament play maybe five times in my career, and every time it's been like that where my ball's in a high rough situation and you're taking a stab at it and you're like, oh, I just missed it. Um, maybe, I don't remember actually. There's, it's also easy to whiff when your ball's sitting like right on the lip of the hole and you just go to tap it in and you miss. That's the other situation where it's easy to whiff. And um, I don't remember ever doing that, but that, that does happen. Yeah, and what's more impactful from a negative perspective, 
an errant tee shot or missing a very short putt? I think the putt is um, more of a psychological uh, challenge because it has like that immediate result attached to it. You know, your four just became a five. Instead of, you know, on a drive, oh, I've hit my drive, you know, out in the trees. Well, what are we going to do about it? You know, you got recovery, you've got, I mean, if you hit it way out and out of bounds, now that's a different story. You got a routine. That's also kind of a, <laughs> yes. that's a challenge. But um, I think the, the putt, because of, um, I've always found that the putts, when you miss a really short putt, it's, it's, uh, there's also, a, there's an expectation with it too, where, you, your caddy, your spouse, everybody who knows you, everybody who's watching you on TV or in the crowd, all is like, huh, I could have made that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's there's a little bit of like, uh, you know, I'm now invalidated as a professional golfer. <laughs> Just that's based on too. that one shot. Yeah. Right. But yeah, that's part of the deal. You know, I mean, I've missed plenty of short putts and I've made plenty of long putts. And so um, it's just, uh, it's part of the thing you have to just kind of, accept and move on and there's you know going to be lots of opportunities to come and hopefully you can learn a little something from it and speaking of that 2009 open championship that you that you won over tom watson i mean everybody's is the crowd favorite so how did that situation with tom watson how did that help you in terms of did it help you be focused that you weren't thinking about your round because you knew that Tom Watson was making a run. How, how did that affect yeah, you? Yeah, actually, partly. Um, there was a lot of factors. Tom being involved helped me kind of distract away from my own, you know, golf. Um, I've always found that that's a really good thing in golf for some reason, to be distracted in between your shots by something else. Um, sickness. You know, if you're, like, feeling bad under the weather, that's a, that usually has great results in golf. You, I don't know why. Oh, interesting. You always, you hear people say like, beware the injured golfer or beware the sick golfer, because I believe it's true. Um, if you go back to, uh, I'll probably get the year wrong, but let's call it the 1964 us open. I think that's a pretty good guess. I believe that was the year that Ken Venturi, um, had a heat stroke basically, um, that they used to play 36 holes the last day of the us open and it was in DC and it was super hot, really hot day. And Ken Venturi almost didn't make it. Like he was more concerned about just surviving the day and finishing <laughs> yeah. than he was about winning, and he won. And that's an early example. Because he wasn't thinking. Yeah, he was just like, he had his mind on something else. In that Open that I won with, uh, with Watson being involved, I had my mind focused on what Watson was doing because I, I was really curious and, and totally absorbed by the story he was writing. And it wasn't until literally probably the, about early in the back nine on Sunday when I thought, okay, well, that's enough. Um, now it's time to... It's game act. time. Yeah. yeah. And I was playing great. I was probably no more than... I don't know if I was ever more than four shots back the whole tournament. I mean, I was always in the thick of it. Played well the first day. Even the whiff. I made double bogey on that hole, but it was a day when a lot of people were shooting high scores, and I think I shot one or two over. You know, I played good golf that day, even though I had the whiff and made double. But I was always in the mix, and Tom was always distracting me with his, uh, with his run. I never played with him that week until the playoff. Uh, but he was, uh, but yeah, I had the distraction of Tom. And then when I got in the playoff, knowing that the whole crowd was going to be pulling for him and completely understanding that and not being bitter about it or anything, it just gave me, uh, it gave me something else to sort of, uh, challenge myself with, I guess. And it, it was a different challenge than just hitting the fairway on the first playoff hole. It was like, how am I going to react to a crowd that's not on my side? I, I mentioned Justin Leonard is one of my good friends. 
Tom Lehman's another one of my good friends. Both of those guys, I saw them in the crowd during the playoff. You think they were there to watch me? <laughs> <laughs> they were there to watch Tom, Heck, right? yes, they were. <laughs> they were there to watch Tom Watson make history. Yes. And yes. Here, 59 years my old. My good yeah. friends, like personally, <laughs> really good friends watching the playoff. Oh. So um, I had to, um, you know, I had a lot of, I had a lot of sort of uh, introspection to do. Uh, how was I going to handle that? For and, sure. Yeah, and it, it was a, a good part of, uh, it was a good, a good part of the, uh, reason I think I went on to win and played really great at the end was because I had like a real purpose about that. Now I've heard the story at that playoff, you were intentional about wanting to show up second Mm. to the first playoff hole. Mm -hmm. And so you go to a porta potty Mm -hmm. right there and you just wait. Mm -hmm. Describe that. And I mean, what are you doing in the porta potty? Just, I mean, what are you thinking about and what are you (laughs) waiting for? How long did you have to wait? The journey (laughs) to get to the porta potty was the funny part. I knew for some reason at Turnberry, they started the uh, playoff on the fifth hole, which was like the farthest one from the clubhouse. I don't know why they did it, but we played five, six, 17, and 18. And I don't understand why they finished on 18, but why they started on five, I got no idea. So um, we, we take all these golf carts over there, they call buggies. There's so many buggies that take people out to the tee because you've got media, you've got caddies and players, officials, you know, lots of buggies headed that way. And you're going, you're not going on the same direction as any hole, you're going across all the holes. So the carts are just going like across fairways, across humps and high rough and just through all kind of stuff. It's just like through the mounds, there's buggies everywhere. And the, the drivers had instructions that you're supposed to take your party, whoever they are, to the tee. And when we got almost to the tee, probably 200 yards from the tee, I told her that I wanted to go to the porta potty, which was about 70 yards or so off the tee. And I knew it because we played there all week. There's a porta potty hidden in the gorse bushes. And she said, no, I'm not allowed. We're, we're, uh, we have to go to the tee. And I said, we're going to the porta potty. <laughs> and she's like, okay. In Scottish, you know, yes. okay. So um, we kind of veered off. We were like the uh, a, a calf that got separated from the herd. Yes. We veer off. And as we veered off, we got off the track where all the other buggies had made. And we're in a, a buggy without a top. So we go across one of the fairways and there's a gallery rope across, you know, there's two metal stakes in the gallery rope yeah. about, I would say right about steering column height and she didn't see it. And as we approach the rope going full speed in the cart, I jump out. <laughs> she barrels into the rope. It, it's a good thing the steering column caught it because it would have possibly hurt her yes i mean the the rope the rope stakes would have come out of the ground it wouldn't have really hurt but still lodges underneath the steering column pulls the stakes out they go (laughs) flying up in the air i'm standing in grass up to you know we'll just say my thighs (laughs) and my heart is just pounding because now we've had this near accident i'm standing in high weeds there's dust everywhere (laughs) the the lady in the buggy is just like gripped on the steering wheel about to rip it off like with her head down and I just, I didn't know what to do. So I just said, I'll just walk the rest of the way. <laughs> so we, uh, we go, I go into the Port of John there. Um, I had about another 50 or 60 yards to walk through the weeds and I just disappear in there. And, um, my caddy went onto the tee and I just go in there. I'm by myself and it's really windy day outside, but you know, in, in a Port of John, it's really calm and it is just quiet, except I can hear the I'll never forget this. I can hear 
the uh, the sound of like the gorse bush and the weeds around the Porter John area kind of like brushing up against the sides, like with the wind, you know. And above that sound, I just waited to hear the T. And I, when when I heard the applause start, you know, and then it turned into sort of a cheer, and then it turned into like a holler, and then it was like a full on. Let's go, Tom! You know, everybody was just going crazy at the tee. There was probably a couple hundred people. Because, again, you know, we're on the fifth hole. Yes. We're way out by way the coast. Out. And so uh, that was my cue to pop out. To go out there. Yeah, I just uh, I spent the whole time in the Porter John just kind of looking in the mirror. And I was sweating <laughs> a lot because it was, it was cold outside, but I was in a sweater. And I come in the confines of this yeah, porta potty and it's, it's a little cramped. It's warm and it's still and all of a sudden it's hot and my face is red, sweaty. <laughs> and I'm just looking in this, you know, they have this like piece of metal on the wall that's supposed to serve as a mirror. And I'm looking in there just kind of like, okay, you just about had an accident in a golf cart. You're on your <laughs> way to a playoff. You're playing against Tom Watson. The whole crowd is going to be for him. But, and it's a very important but, you're working your plan. You're in control of your situation right now because you're letting Tom Watson get to the tees first. I just wanted Tom to hear a little applause for me. I didn't want to be on the tee engulfed in that huge uproar. So I wanted him to hear something. So as soon as I heard the applause, that's when I walked out of the Porter John, walked the 70 or 80 yards up towards the tee. And sure enough, when I walked to the tee, I got some applause. You got some. I got At least some. some. It wasn't was over exuberant applause, but, but that's I got what you some. Wanted. And I got to, you know, wave to the crowd and engage as many people around there as I could with a nice smile and let them know that, hey, you don't have to feel bad about rooting for Tom. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Right? I got you. I understand. And so uh, that, for me, was a huge way to start the playoff. It was huge because even though there was chaos and the lady was, you know, driver was like almost like fainted because she hit the rope and all that. (laughs) It's amazing. The story and everything. Um I was still working my plan and I had a plan. I was in charge of what I was doing. I was, I was really in control. Plus, the way the tournament finished, I had birdie date 18, Tom and Bogey 18. I felt like I had a real opportunity to make my move. Yeah. Early. Did you sense that there was a crack? I did a little bit. Um, part of it was that I just had enormous confidence in my own play at that very moment. And part of it was I felt like if I, if I could apply a little bit of pressure, it might be a lot. For Tom, because, you know, 59 years old and just the motion of all that stuff would have been really tough. I mean, I, I can't even describe or imagine. I would never be able to do it justice like the what he did to, to get to that point. It was still an amazing story. Oh, my gosh, it was amazing. For sure. Well, wrapping up here, Stuart, I'd, one of the things I always ask is just through people's journeys, any words of wisdom that you would like to share? And it could be phrases, mottos, quotes, or just life advice that... You know, means a lot to you. Yeah, well, certainly. Um, two things. Um, one thing that's a little bit cliche that I always like to do that I've learned over the years is that I, I like to kind of put everything through the 20 or 30 years from now filter. You know, like I used to say, when I'm 60, am I going to look back? Now I'm getting kind of close to that, you know, 45. <laughs> so now I say, like, when I'm 70, am I going to look back? And for instance, you know, I've played in a lot of tournaments, 560 some odd tournaments. And um, I would probably. And the PGA Tour won't like this very much because they like us to play a lot. I would probably have chosen to play a little bit less just because I know how hard it was in my family and my wife, our relationship. It was just really difficult. We have a wonderful marriage, but the time away for basically 12 years when I was by myself out on the road and she was at home as a single parent yeah, raising, raising the kids, kids was a real struggle for us. And I probably could have 
ease that struggle by playing, say, three less tournaments a year. It would have been an impact. So I like to put everything through the, you know, what would the six-year-old version of myself look back and say, should I have taken that job and, you know, worked extra hours and moved our family off to the somewhere else? Or, you know, should I have, in my case, should I have played more tournaments? Should I had, you know, you're looking at a situation right now, try to go through the eyes of the 60-year-old version of yourself and say, would it really be better for my family if I did that thing that's going to mean advancement for my career or am I just doing it for myself? It's hard to do at the time. Of course. But that's one way to look back. The other thing is that the um, last couple of years with Lisa's diagnosis with breast cancer have been very trying. And uh, for her, you know, it's almost impossible for me to even do it justice describing it. So um, uh, what we've learned from that is that um, we have... Uh, our marriage and our faith has been like really cranked up to a new level and it's been sweetened in a way that we never would have thought. And uh, our main message, we talk about this all the time, what is our message? And our main message for now, we believe, is that there's really no reason to wait for some catastrophe in your life like cancer to come in and have an impact and force you to really like investigate what we really are and strengthen your faith and strengthen your marriage and your relationships. Maybe you're not married, but strengthen your relationship with people around you. And in the end, the relationship with people and with our creator, God, are what's really important. And the message being, there's no reason to wait for that. It's waiting for you. I love that. And that, that's that's the main thing that we've been able to... There's a lot of things we're wrestling with. You know, Lisa's still in the battle and she's going to be indefinitely. She's doing great, really great. She's in remission and she's doing awesome. But, you know, it's still there. So um, she doesn't know what the future holds, really, and I don't know what the future holds. But the future is the future. Yeah. I think in the Bible but it says... But you've got your faith now. It, yeah. The Bible says, that let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. That's right. And today, we say, don't wait for something like that to come around when you got the opportunity to do it right now. Well said. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it, and I know I've taken way too much of your time. <laughs> Not at all. I like doing this. It's fun and it's nice to have a chat. And it's good for me to get some of these stories out there too. I loved hearing about them. Yeah. For me, seriously, it's good to talk about it. And um, I, I always learn a little bit about hearing myself and my stories and my experience and try to go back and, uh, you know, just like I said, just like when I was eight years old, trying to be a better person, better golfer That's tomorrow right. than I was today. I love it. Thank you, Stuart. You got it. As you continue to focus on the journey instead of the reward, then typically the reward becomes more in focus. And that usually happens because you are much more dialed in into the immediate task at hand. And there's no doubt that Stuart and his wife, Lisa, have faced that in their life and their career. While now they're able to focus on living in the moment without any hesitation. Now that finishes episode 81, and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 